Welcome to the fourth installment of Guido Talks. This is the last in the series before we jet off to our summer staycations, so be sure to listen to it all. My name's Tom Harwood, and again, I'm joined this week by Guido Talks founder and editor Paul Staines. Hello, everyone. And reporter Christian Calgi. Hello. You're listening to Guido Talks, the weekly roundup of all things Guido. So this week, Parliament shut down for the summer, but that didn't stop it being a bumper week of news. Uh, Paul, do you want to kick off with one of the stories that did best on the site this week? All about free speech. Well, it's actually a good news story. So uh, Mick Buckley, who runs a uh, charity called Mancunian Way in Manchester, as you might have guessed, was fired by the trustees. And bearing in mind, this is a charity he founded. Uh, because he made a comment about Black Lives Matter. It was a reasonably innocuous comment, saying, you know, maybe all lives matter. This obviously is a uh, woke blasphemy. Uh, and he contacted um, the Free Speech Union, run by Toby Young, friend of the book, and said help. And the Free Speech Union got him a lawyer, intervened, and lo and behold, uh, within a day, uh, the charity trustees have resigned, he's been reinstated, and it's a significant victory for the Free Speech Union, which was founded to exactly this kind of thing. So, a success. And our readers contributed because they have raised, I think, £38,000 for the Free Speech Union, which has allowed it to have a full-time staff member, and I believe they're going to get a caseworker, because they're just uh, swamped with examples of people being uh, cancelled by... Uh, woke neo-Puritans. This did seem like it was a particularly egregious example because, of course, what the guy wrote on LinkedIn was not that different from what the leader of the opposition said on television a few weeks ago when he was challenged over the stance of defunding the police and, and all such, such sort of things. He said that there's a difference between saying Black Lives Matter and ascribing to the aims of the organisation that purports to speak for Black Lives Matter. And that's basically what this LinkedIn post said that got the charity boss fired. It's an extraordinary example of overreach and cancel culture. And it's bloody good that, that, that it's been sorted out. But so many of these cancellations come from people that, you know, only ever experience one side of public opinion piling in. And so often it's, it is the, you know, it's the Black Lives Matter movement that can organise these social media pylons. So you've got these trustees that see this absolute social media bombardment and very often don't really hear the opposing views and bow to pressure. And it shows the crucial but quite simple role something like the Free Speech Union plays because it provides that that necessary other side of the argument and um, and, and tries to prevent these companies from so such easily bowing to uh, one-sided public pressure. I think part of the role of the Free Speech Union is to advise organisations when that pile-on happens that, hold on, you know, don't panic, it's uh, not as bad as you think, and yeah. there's two sides to the argument. Uh, I should uh, declare an interest, I'm on the board of uh, the FSU, just in case anyone goes, ah, he's speaking of self-interest. Well, good to see that Guido Talks is sticking to rigorous uh, transparency standards. Uh, today. But no, moving on, I mean, I did mention Keir Starmer a second ago, 
distancing himself from the aims of Black Lives Matter. That's not the only way in which he's perhaps uh, a big change from the Corbyn era. It seems presentationally as well, his party has taken a big turn since he took over. And I found it very, very interesting watching this week, um, Sakir appearing, and indeed all of his uh, shadow cabinet uh, ministers appearing on various news channels, saying uh, the new line over Shamima Begum, which they found a very uh, media savvy way of saying, yes, she should come back, but we don't like her coming back, which I think is a big difference from when Corbyn went around saying, of course, she should come back, human rights, blah, blah, blah. Keir Starmer's line is, Shemima Begum should return to the UK, but we don't welcome it and she should face justice. And it seems like this is just the start of the very um, consistent way in which they are much more media savvy now and a bigger threat to the Tories than they have been in many, many years. You say Osborne's rule of politics that learn to count. Well, I think uh, Keir Starmer learns to read polls and he can see that Shania Begum, whatever the rights and wrongs in law, her coming back is not popular and is disastrous on the doorstep. So he's taking a sort of stance that is correct and he's a lawyer, so he'll take a legalistic human rights attitude, but he knows it's not a vote winner. And he's also taking a lot of stances that have um, resulted in the sort of overwhelming um, endorsement of St. Tony Blair, uh, who has now come out and said his uh, leadership of the party has been uh, excellent and, and really positive. Uh, I'm not sure the the Labour left will be particularly pleased uh, with that endorsement, especially coming at the end of the incredible week of Labour infighting that they've had over the uh, Panorama apology. Uh, I just find it you know, they, they, I just think there might be some. We've, we know about the Trotsap collective. I wonder if there's some secret right wing WhatsApp group of the Labour Party trying to piss them off as much as possible in any one given week. Oh, that's not a conspiracy theory. That's a real thing. You know, it, the uh, uh, Murphy, who uh, the Scottish former Scottish Labour Party leader, was working out Tony Blair's offices to organise things. Um, Jim Murphy. You know, the, 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 I detect. The hand of a centrist Labour leaning lawyer getting another centrist Labour leaning lawyer uh, in a position of power. They've been careful, but I suspect when the um, memoirs are done and the, uh, the revelations are made, the hand of Tony will have been behind a lot of this. And it's amazing thinking about that because it's only about a year ago that everyone was speculating that Tony Blair was voting for the Lib Dems in the European elections. And to have that, um, to have him swing right back to the Labour Party is, uh, mm. is an achievement, I suppose. But also it shows what we look at with the polls in general. The Lib Dems have sunk right down to less than half their achievement at the general election. And the Labour Party has risen by about that much. It's not enough to catch up with the Tories, but they seem to be consolidating that centre-left vote. The Tory strategists have long liked to have Lib Dems on life support and not a dead parrot, you know, because it takes those votes well, from, yeah. from Labour. Splitting the vote at an, at an election has always been very important to getting those big majorities. If you think about uh, 83, when the Alliance took votes from 
Labour, you think about 97 when the Lib Dems performed spectacularly well, taking a load of votes from middle class Tories. And again, you know, that difference between 2017 and 19, really, a lot of that relied on a, a, a decent increase in the Lib Dem vote, even though it resulted in no seats. It helped split the vote in a lot of uh, a lot of seats and help the Tories out. And obviously the Brexit well, they, they, was pretty united behind Boris, right? Yeah, I mean, although there are several seats that if the Brexit party votes had gone Tory, the Tories would have definitely had. I'm thinking, you know, Hartlepool or Doncaster North. There are lots of seats that um, that were that didn't go as blue as they might, um, thanks to the, that, that Brexit vote being a bit split. But also there's some academic literature that suggests that actually uh, the Alliance Party did take away from the Tories as well and that it, it might not have been the, as big a factor in 83 as is often suggested, uh, particularly by the hard left. But just moving on from that, it's it's uh, interesting looking at the wider strategy of uh, Keir Starmer's Labour Party. In policy, it hasn't really become that Blairite because it hasn't really got any policy. It seems to flip-flop about every week, uh, avoiding questions of wealth taxes or Brexit policy or anything. It doesn't seem like it has any particular stances that it that it uh, puts itself out there on. But what it does do is control the media in a very Blairite way. And we saw this uh, this week with Kay Burley, um, I think perhaps accidentally revealing during an interview with Shadow Foreign Secretary Lisa Nandy that the Labour Party only allows five minutes for Labour cabinet um, shadow cabinet members to be interviewed on sky news whereas the government allows nine minutes so that very tight controlling of interview time and message does hark back a lot more to that central control that we saw under tony blair and that simply went away under jeremy corbyn if you look at some of the shadow cabinet you wouldn't want to expose them to prime time for very long if i were if i were their media advisors <laughs> Well, moving on from Sakir, there was a flashback this week to the Corbyn era and the extraordinary uh, battle that Jeremy Corbyn's Labour Party launched against former Labour Party staff, Jewish staff, whistleblowers against the uh, anti-Semitism that was rife and I think to some extent is still rife within the Labour Party. Calgi, can you talk us through what happened in this court case? Yeah, of course, this is the uh, ongoing civil war within the Labour Party between the, uh, the, the hard left and the new leaders. And essentially what you had was uh, a panoramic broadcast last year, which, which really, I think, hammered home the Labour um, anti-Semitism scandal to a much wider audience than outside the Westminster bubble. And the Labour weren't too happy about this. And they went in very, very hard against the whistleblowers and the BBC and the um, producer of the particular episode uh, to the extent that they, the Labour Party were taken to court um, for defamatory and false accusations against the whistleblowers. Uh, and um, and uh, Labour, you know, under much wiser legal counsel than uh, we saw under Jeremy Corbyn's leadership, finally, you know, just sort of shut up, sat down, apologised and paid what is um, understood to be about £200,000 worth uh, of damages to these um, uh, these hard-done-by brave whistleblowers. 
Corbyn now raised uh, like over 100,000 to fight a case, which I don't really understand the ins and outs of, where he's going to countersue. Am I right in thinking that? Well, I think this is this is a precautionary £100,000 that has been raised because uh, there was some talk, £150,000 now, it keeps on rising and rising. Um, but this is, there is not a court case as of yet, but the Panorama reporter was um, positing uh, that he would sue Corbyn over Corbyn's response statement this week to the court settlement, whereby Corbyn repeated a lot of the libelous claims that were being sued over in the first place. So this is a sort of preparation for what might be round two, not against the Labour Party, but against Corbyn as an individual. So it could be the case that this particular panorama reporter takes Jeremy Corbyn to court um, for delegitimising his journalism and belittling the whistleblowers. So it's an ongoing thing, but it is extraordinary, the sort of um, uh, uh, completely blind to how this looks attitude that Jeremy Corbyn has taken, digging his heels in yet again on this issue of anti-Semitism. John Ware, who's the producer, Panorama producer, who's suing, is quite a well-established and respected type. He's, you know, he's annoyed the right and the left in his time. I think I'm right in saying that he's also suing uh, a left-wing blog called The Press Gang. So uh, he's obviously in a litigious mood and wants to defend his reputation. Uh, and you, you can't really blame him, given how over-the-top the slandering of him was. And, of course, there was, a, there was an entirely coordinated um, attack job of the whistleblowers and the journalists, not just by the Labour Party, but also by, you know, the usual far-left... Navarro, Owen Jones media type who, uh, you know, have been, you know, pretty quiet this week, given all the old tweets that have surfaced, you know, just how appallingly abusive they were about these um, decent people that were taking a risk to highlight the chronic problem of anti-Semitism in the Labour Party. Now, this all came to a head on Wednesday, the last day of the parliamentary term, when Jeremy Corbyn was supposed to speak in the adjournment debate uh, at the end of the day. And his name was down there on the order paper. But then when it came to be his turn to speak, he was nowhere to be seen. And we were actually alerted to this by a text from an MP in the chamber who was really looking forward to standing up and having a chat with uh, Jeremy Corbyn perhaps during his speech. Um, but, but of course, this, this day, this terrible day for Calamity Corbyn, whereby he was shafted by Keir Starmer in the morning over the fallout from Salisbury and, and Starmer's distancing over Corbyn's response to uh, the Salisbury attack. And then um, uh, almost immediately after that, the Labour Party comes out and pays those significant damages, not only paying damages to the whistleblowers, but also all of their legal fees. And then Corbyn issues his own statement and becomes under threat of litigation himself. So you can understand why he was running away from the House of Commons there, why he didn't want to pop up in the debate that he had his name down for. Um, it really was not a good end of term for Jeremy Corbyn. And uh, Corbyn's legal challenge before the uh, apology in the court as well, don't forget that. He, I think Unite, Len McCusty, uh, financed it on behalf of Seamus Milne, Jane Formby and Corbyn so they could get sight of the uh, apology for whatever good that did them. Uh, there was um, 
to, to segue to the next topic, there was, of course, another glaring omission from uh, someone down to speak on the order paper on Wednesday. And that was Rob Roberts missing <laughs> his uh, opportunity to contribute to the women's inequalities debate uh, that morning. And that was, of course, because the uh, mainstream media finally picked up on what must have been, I think we've done about half a dozen stories about uh, Rob Roberts' MP uh, over lockdown. The BBC finally ran it, and then everyone got on board. Um, and this was, of course, the uh, ongoing saga of his behaviour to uh, both senior and junior staff members in the House of Commons, inappropriate messaging, inappropriate behaviour of um, other sorts. Uh, and um, it's all it's all resulted in um, the Conservative Party finally uh, announcing they are doing their own investigation into the guy. And as of last night, he has completely disappeared uh, all traces from social media. So it's still one to watch. But I'm uh, still sceptical that we will see the whip withdrawn anytime soon. I don't think he'll be a candidate at the next election. I can't see that. I don't think uh, that's fair to say. Uh, if I were uh, a betting man. Uh, I mean, I spoke to someone in CTHQ about him. He said, who had responsibility for keeping an eye on candidates and all that kind of stuff and checking checking them out. And he said, look, we didn't expect to win that seat. And you know, <laughs> some people get through. So uh, anyway, also, Chris, I want to give a commendation for pursuing pursuing that story and uh, I don't think you got the credit for it you deserved more widely Cheers No, it was a bit egregious seeing people like Victoria Derbyshire and lots of other BBC people chat, pat, patting the BBC on the back for this story when obviously they'd all been reading about it for the last two months on Guido Forbes <laughs> it was, In some quarters I saw it reported as a BBC exclusive <laughs> <laughs> Outrageous. Outrageous. It's all right. it's, first, you know, they, first it, they take our money through the license fee, then they take our stories. Take our stories. I wasn't too I wasn't too sad because of course we'd also had a quite a good um scoop earlier that morning and being able to provide the Russia report half an hour before everyone else. That's because Vladimir <laughs> said it over for me, you know. Just fair. kidding, Carol, just kidding. <laughs> it was a good day in all. Moving on from the big fry of the Russia report and potential um withdrawn whips. Onto the Lib Dem leadership contest, which is still going on extraordinarily. Um, <laughs> so we like to keep a little eye on it. Actually, it's quite hard not to keep an eye on this because our inbox is so full of very angry Lib Dems from both camps sending in a lot of stuff about the other side. Lib Dems are filthy campaigners, as we've discussed before on this show. But this week has all been about data. First, um, we exposed how Leila Moran had um, had had supplied figures for a Guardian article on malnourishment that were over a thousand percent out from what the actual <laughs> figures were. Actually, what you had was the NHS slapping down Leila Moran for using false figures and bandying fake facts. And when you have the NHS feeling like it has to come out to slap down a politician, you know they've made a big misstep. But that was only the first in a series of ridiculous stories with both of these leadership contenders, because then we revealed that on Leila Moran's website, she has potentially breached GDPR because she has copied and pasted 
the cookie policy from another fanatical Remain website called Best for Britain. And so her website doesn't actually tell anyone that they're being tracked by Facebook ads as they're on the website. Now, as someone who was very vocal about the Cambridge Analytica stuff and is convinced that it was Facebook ads that won Brexit, um, it's very odd to see her employing exactly the same con tactics on her own website. But it wasn't just Leila Moran, because, of course, on the other side of the coin as well, we had Ed Davey be officially struck down by the party on Friday for breaching leadership contest rules using data from his previous leadership campaign in this current leadership campaign. So that's about your Lib Dem roundup for the week. It's fascinating as usual. The greatest irony is that they're breaking GDPR, which is a law that has been handed down by their lord and saviours in the EU Commission. Absolutely. And they've been very vocal, both of the candidates um, in the past, about how important GDP, GDPR is and that we should not ditch it after Brexit. In fact, Ed Davey, who was found to have breached it today, was angry with uh, Google for opting to go with the, quite frankly, better American model of data protection rather than this incredibly cumbersome statist EU version. So what, but, what, is um, the, what is the sanction going to be on Ed Davey? I mean, there are only two candidates. Are they going to say, don't do that again? It's naughty. As far as I can see, and the statement was very, very short, it was about three sentences long, but basically it said, he won't do that again, and we're going to carry on as per, uh, which is very, very Lib Dem. They can't, they can't afford to withdraw the whip, can they? I mean, <laughs> <laughs> they'd lose 10% of their party. <laughs> no, but uh, I think we should probably move on before we get stuck down too much in, into Lib Dem politics and approach uh, a much more powerful political force than the Liberal Democrat Party, which is, of course, Public Health England. Now, Christian, what was the, uh, what was the story about Public Health England this week? Yeah, earlier in the week, I dug up some uh, rather interesting stuff from the Lancet archives back from 2013, when Public Health England just got going. And uh, Guido has previously railed against many of the um, things that both Public Health England stand for and their uh, cock-ups um, on public policy. Uh, the leader, the, this, the chief executive, is a man called Duncan Selby. And it turns out that when he was appointed, Selby himself professed you could fit his public health credentials on a postage stamp. Uh, but this is what I want to do for the next number of years because it matters so much. Um, and it just harks back to the quality of some of the civil service and the civil service appointments programme that you have a man who himself professes to having basically no public health credentials, taking up the chairmanship of the highest public health body in the country uh, just because it, it matters and he wants to give it a go. And we suggested that perhaps had Public Health England appointed someone with a, a smidge more uh, competence, then they wouldn't have cocked up on COVID death counting. They wouldn't have failed to ramp up testing for coronavirus uh, testing capacity. And perhaps the broader brush is they wouldn't be devoting time during a pandemic or generally pushing for these sort of 20% sugar reductions and trying to push policy down this interventionist nanny status route. 
Well, it seems like for the last five years, the only thing the organization has been doing is pushing uh, for uh, bans on mm. advertising and controlling how people live their lives rather than, you know, preparing for a potential pandemic, which might have been <laughs> easier and the more obvious thing yeah. to do for a public health body rather than controlling what kind of food we can eat. Um, but it, it is it is interesting actually now to hear on particularly the backbenches of the Tory party, a lot more grumbling about these kind of quangos, about Public Health England and the like. Um, the Electoral Commission is another one, actually. I think we might be approaching uh, post-COVID, a world where the Tory party is actually ready to start another bonfire of these quangos mm. and either massively change the mandate of these organisations or get rid of them altogether. Yeah, believe it when I see it, to be honest. I mean, I've heard this... For, for decades and does it really happen well i mean we do i mean it is interesting looking at the original bonfire of the quangos in the early coalition years they did actually get rid of quite a few bodies it's um i was very skeptical about this until i was um researching this for an article i think sometimes we can we can overlook how much of that sort of Blair era responsibility ducking quango creating was rolled back under the coalition it wasn't it wasn't nothing that they did. Um, but there is good news as well this week when it comes to public health and it comes to the coronavirus pandemic more broadly. And that is the coronavirus response in the UK now looks like it's doing a lot better than the EU. Now, this is something that you won't hear on uh, most uh, mainstream news programmes. You certainly won't see it in a graph on Newsnight. But Britain now only has 9.6 cases per million of coronavirus, and the EU has an average of 12.5 cases per million. So the UK is now significantly uh, less COVID-ridden than the European Union, which is perhaps why we've stopped hearing so much about these international comparisons, because suddenly the UK doesn't look quite so bad on them anymore. Yeah, I had noticed we weren't getting all these graphs and horror stories with and news night with uh, the scary music as uh, the graph goes upwards. Uh, but it's still, it's all relative though. I mean, it's not a great situation, let's be honest. But it's, yeah. it's relative performance. Yeah, but uh, that's, that's uh, certainly true. We 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 have we have uh, we we were above for a while. We're now significantly below. But I mean, comparing the UK to the EU average, to America, to Brazil. I mean, the number of cases worldwide has never been higher than it is now. Whereas in the UK, we are at our lowest levels since almost pre-lockdown. So well, it seems like it, really ages ago we were, we were talking about the Swedes and the, their attitude. I remember seeing that interview with the Swedish um, epidemiologist who said it's all going to end up where it's going to end up. And by suppressing it really hard, we just delay things and it's not really going to change the uh, spread of the of the pand of the virus overall over time. And I wonder if that's going to turn out to be true. Well, I mean, it's it's interesting because this is what the Sage minutes, which have now been published and we do occasionally refer back to for articles. The Sage minutes from early March do have the government's top scientists saying we don't want to suppress the virus too much because that'll mean there's going to be a bigger second peak. Uh, they seem to have changed their minds. Uh, quite quickly after that, when they saw how quickly it was spreading, and we went into a proper big lockdown. But it remains to be we, seen. We, we've all changed our minds, haven't we? 
We've all, I mean, we've all changed. I mean, I remember at the beginning telling my wife, oh, I want to get this thing, get it over and done with, you know. And, yeah. and now I'm a little bit more wary about getting, now you see all the side effects and the blood clots and all that kind of stuff. I think, I think yeah. we're, we're on a I learning curve. I think the big curve. moment was when, when the prime minister himself ended up in intensive care. I think a lot of people sat up and thought, okay, this is something more than, the, than a cold. But obviously it's such a new disease. It's so novel that um, scientists still don't really fully understand it. And it's only existed in the world for sort of around half a year. So it's natural that there are going to be lots of different views on what's best to do. I don't think anyone has the monopoly of wisdom here. And really in order to make those final comparisons, we're far too early. Um, and it will be probably several years before we actually know who called it right and who called it wrong. Well, I can tell you're wrong, Tom, because according to my inbox, a lot of people who email me do have all the wisdom that's needed on this issue and they know better. <laughs> and and uh, tell me, I'm particularly vehement about the whole mask that I believe. How many of our readers are nuts? <laughs> it's just like... And they don't emailing me saying, you're not nuts. You're nuts. Yeah. <laughs> the only website in Western that will actively insult its readership. I'm just shocked. How many of our readers are absolutely bonkers? You know, and think, and think that we've got some kind of proto-Nazi government that's going to put a microchip in their head with the vaccinations. <laughs> people, people, you're wrong. You're crazy. <laughs> amazing, amazing. No, it's brilliant. We can insult the readership because they, they we know the that they're not, they're, they're not the particular snowflake. They're, <laughs> they're the same people who are angry about the ad block, anti-ad block thing, you know, saying they're not going to read it if, they, if we have the ad block anti-ad block uh, software going. <laughs> I don't care. <laughs> uh, well, I mean, it is interesting with, with masks. It's, it's like, okay, what, what's, the, what's the difference here? You look at somewhere like Japan, which didn't have the sort of sophisticated track and trace system that some other Asian countries had, but they did have a culture where everyone wore masks. And guess what? They didn't have their government then coming in and forcibly shutting businesses and restricting people's livelihoods in the way that we had our government in this country restricting people's livelihoods. Uh, so really, what is the larger imposition? Wearing a bit of cloth across, across your face for the next few months or having the government come in and shut down the whole economy again? I know which one I'd prefer. Well, you know what I'm going to say. Hope you enjoy your nappy rash on your face. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, speaking of insulting uh, our readers, <laughs> Paul, you did some insulting politicians this week as well. What is this about satire, fake Guardian headlines and Jess Phillips? Somebody tweeted out a fake headline from the fake Guardian headline generator with Jess Phillips' byline on it saying, whilst everyone was losing their heads, Shamima Begum kept hers. Maybe she should become a Labour MP. You know, a crack at, I think, uh, <laughs> the, the Labour policy that she should come back and obviously just teasing, etc. Anyway, in response to this, Jess Phillips tweets out that the, head, the headline tweet had put her family and staff at risk of violence. It's been shared 280 times. She's reported Twitter, uh, Twitter support, and I have no further re recourse because it's anonymous, and that is annoying. It's designed to incite hatred, and I find that something happens when I speak, I get powerful. 
I thought it was just a joke, you know. And uh, I said, I said in the article that I don't think there's any risk of violence from this. I mean, I'm not. I don't know what the motivation of the person who uh, created the uh, meme had in mind, but I think it was just taking the mick. And it should, look, let's be clear. Jessica gets a lot of abuse. Some of it obscene, and she doesn't deserve that. And her her staff don't deserve be threatened in any way. But MPs should not have any rights above anyone else, and we should be able to satirise them and take the mick. And I'm sorry, just because it appears on Twitter from an anonymous account rather than from on spinning images it used to be, or have I got news for you, or private eye, if it, that, that is still going, isn't it? It doesn't make any difference. It's, it's satire. You've got to differentiate that from threatening or inciting violence. A very big difference. So, no, I didn't think that should be banned. You have to have an IQ reminiscent of a sort of potato to think that this sort of headline is actually real, especially when it doesn't, when you, when you take the three seconds it takes to search those words and you realise that article doesn't exist on the internet. It's, it's really, I mean, who on earth was actually fooled by this? It, it's, it seems like one of these things where, you know, someone will say something ridiculous and it will trend on Twitter, not because people are agreeing with it, but because everyone is saying how ridiculous it is. And, 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 and you'd be loath to find someone actually um, sticking up for the original post. I'm surprised that when the police in Germany and Dunn said it should be bad, it's terrible, Twitter's you know, not responsible. And the reason I think a lot of um, mainstream journalists hate this kind of stuff is because uh, they see that you know social media is eating their lunch and taking their advertising and stuff like that. So you, some of the motivation to do these anti-social media stories is because of the competition for you know revenue basically well speaking of the british press wanting to crack down on social media not only because it's taking away their uh, readership but also their revenue um the the press has uh, got some pretty stiff competition because there was a yougov poll this week that found for the first time more than half of british voters see the press in this country as a force for bad. Now, there have always been more people uh, since this question began being asked by YouGov. There have always been more people who saw the press as bad than good. But for the first time this month, that number breached 50%. And I noticed it was specifically newspaper journalists. Or new, it was about newspapers, wasn't it? And I just wonder... Well, it said the press. And, uh, yeah, the press, which generally I think means newspapers. But yeah. I just wonder if two months of watching uh, the lobby's finest question the politicians has made that move of 10 points against um, <laughs> the, the press being a force of good. Because uh, you see how the sausage is made, maybe not so keen on the sausage. Mm. It's interesting now, looking at the party breakdown of it, because the Labour Party has always been overwhelmingly hostile to the press. That has grown in the last year. It's the Tory party that has totally flipped. This time last year, the Tory party was majority thinking that the press was a good thing. Now, this year, the Tory party majoritarily thinks that the press is a bad thing. It's a complete mirror image from where it was 12 months ago. And you have to ask some questions as to how the press has behaved in terms of what has inspired that complete 180 degree swing. I think you've also got to ask why it is that 
that um, Lib Dems seemingly now hold the most positive view of the media? Why is it that a party that loves London, that is very metropolitan and very liberal and amazingly pro-European Union, so loves the institution of the press now in a way that Labour and the Tories don't? That's one to ponder. I think it's because Lib Dems read broadsheets and the broadsheets, apart from the Telegraph, are all remain friendly. Probably that. But we also learned precisely why the lobby never wanted to do televised lobby briefings. Because if you can imagine where the standing of the press would be now if we had televised lobby briefings for a few years <laughs> rather than just a couple of months of uh, questions. I am really looking forward to it. I mean, this is, this is the last podcast of the season. But I think... The podcast next season will feature a lot of the Dam Street live stream briefings in them because that is going to be hilarious. All very dull at times. <laughs> well, we'll be there to sift through the content and find those gems. I don't think that the lobby are going to be as outspoken as they were behind closed doors, particularly towards you, Christian, uh, where some... Um, <laughs> Quite, quite aggressive language was used, uh, or at least body language. Um, so it will be interesting to see how they behave when they know they're being watched. But, uh, Paul, you're right. This is the last episode of the series. So we'll be back when Parliament is back in September. But until then, thank you for sticking with us for the last 14 episodes. Thank you for listening and have a wonderful summer. Bye. Yeah.